Now as we look at his word, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the truth of this passage. That though we were dead by your work, we have been made alive. Father, I pray that you would use this passage this morning to, to stir our hearts and our affections, that you would remind us of the amazing truths of the gospel. Father, I also pray that if there are any today who, Lord, are dead in trespasses and sins, Lord, that you would breathe life into those dry bones. Lord, that you would save sinners by the preaching of your word. That, Lord, in all things, you would receive glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, located in California is Mount Whitney, which is the tallest location in the continental U.S., standing over 14,000 feet above sea level. From the top of Mount Whitney, I've only read, but I've read, that hikers enjoy crystal clean air while beholding the, the beauty of the Sierra Nevada mountains, all the while being surrounded by these turquoise and, and indigo lakes. Standing on Mount Whitney, you feel like you're on the top of the world. And yet, just 80 miles southeast of Mount Whitney is Death Valley. Death Valley is considered the lowest point in the continental U.S., 280 feet below sea level. And Death Valley is the hottest place in the country. 
We think San Bernardino is hot. We love our air conditioning, and yet Death Valley holds the record temperature for the hottest place in the shade. Death Valley has a record high temperature of 134 degrees in the shade. What a stark contrast. From mountain peak to, to valley low, right? Death Valley is perpetually hot. Mount Whitney is perpetually cool. From Mount Whitney, you look down on all of life. From Death Valley, you can only look up to the rest of the world. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul sets up a contrast starker than Mount Whitney and Death Valley. Paul presents this, this contrast between our previous condition outside of Christ to who we are now in our present union with Christ. We who were dead have been made alive. We who once walked following the course of this world are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We who were once by nature children of wrath have been made alive, have been saved by grace, and are now children of God. You see, what Paul does in this passage is paint a vivid contrast between who we once were and who we are now. So this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, Paul contrasts what we were by nature to what we have become as a result of God's grace to enhance our gratitude for what we have in Christ and to influence how we live. Dear Christian, as you stand on this mountaintop of salvation by grace this morning, I want you to see that you came from a valley. I want you to remember the depth of your depravity apart from Christ so that you may see the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus in saving sinners like you and me. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 divides into three sections. In verses 1 to 3, Paul describes our sinful condition apart from Christ. Then in verses 4 to 7, he describes the, the mercy and the love of God and how we've been made alive with Christ. And then finally in verses 8 to 10, we see the nature of this salvation which God has effected. And this morning we're going to examine those first two sections, verses 1 to 7, and we'll save the final three verses for next week. Paul begins this passage in verses 1 to 3 by reminding us of the amazing depths of our depravity. Commenting on these verses, one author wrote, there is perhaps no clearer statement in Scripture on the sinfulness of man apart from Christ. It is a bleak outlook. 
And when we look at these verses, it's, it's important to understand that Ephesians 2 is filled with the good news of the gospel, with mercy and with love and with grace. But Paul does not display the, the good news of the gospel. Paul does not get to the grace of God until he has made it inescapably clear the desperate need and universal sinfulness of humanity. Before Paul can speak of the good news, he must present the bad news. The bad news in verses 1 to 3 must come before the good news in verses 4 to 10. Why? Because it's not until we understand the bad news about our sin that we truly appreciate the good news of the gospel. Only when you realize how sinful you are apart from Christ will you realize how great the Lord Jesus Christ is. I want you to think about that. Only when you realize how sinful you are apart from Christ will you realize how great how loving and how merciful the Lord Jesus Christ is. So under this first heading of the amazing depths of our depravity, we see, first of all, that apart from Christ, we were dead. Paul addresses the, the depths of our depravity in verse 1 by reminding us that apart from Christ, we were dead. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the devastating description of the human condition. Apart from Christ, you were dead. And this statement is true of all people. In verse 1, Paul is specifically speaking of his Gentile audience. But by the time he gets to verse 3, he's not only included himself and his fellow Jewish brethren, but he's included what? The rest of mankind. John Stott famously says of this passage, Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere. This isn't just the description of those who are locked up in prison for some horrible crime. This is the description of all of us. From me to you to that charming nursery worker who's holding my baby who I love so much. This is all of us. But in what sense, we have to ask? In what sense are all people dead apart from Christ? Paul's not speaking here literally of a, of a physical death, but rather of a spiritual death. And we know this because in the next two verses, we see that while we were dead, we were also very much alive and active. Paul says we walked and we followed, and we lived. We're spiritually dead, but physically alive. The Seattle Times 
published a letter that a citizen of Greenville, South Carolina received. And this letter was from the Department of Social Services. And the note read, To who it may concern, your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we received notice that you passed away. <laughs> However, you may reapply if there is any change in your circumstances. Do with that what you may. The story makes us laugh, right? But it illustrates our passage well. According to Ephesians, spiritually dead people get letters all the time. Spiritually dead people go to the store and they build companies and they get married and they have kids and they raise families. Apart from Christ, we were physically alive, but very much spiritually dead. The spiritual death is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. You remember God's instructions in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 2.17, he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And this death wasn't primarily physical, right? Though Adam and Eve would certainly die, it was a spiritual death. Romans 5.17 says that when Adam sinned, the entire world was plagued with this spiritual death and everyone born physically in Adam was born spiritually dead. Ephesians 4.18, Paul describes this spiritual deadness as being alienated from the life of God. There's no spiritual life. Though our bodies were alive, our inner man was spiritually dead. The implications of this truth are devastating. The reality is the unbeliever then is not sick. The unbeliever is dead. And that means that apart from God intervening and, and giving us life, we had no inclination to respond to God. We had no desire to, to please God, no ability to please God. We were unable to understand and appreciate spiritual truth. So 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unbeliever does not love God or care about what he says. He has no desire to worship God, no desire to come to church on Sunday and fellowship with the saints. And so Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. Dead men cannot seek God. Just like a corpse in a funeral home, doesn't have a desire or an ability to eat and drink. The one who's spiritually dead has, has no appetite for spiritual truth, can't go about spiritual actions. 
apart from Christ, we were lost and needed to be found, dead and needed to be made alive. John Stott says of this passage, we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while living. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of fallen human existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the good shepherd found us. We were dead. Paul goes on to say in verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul highlights here that the, the sphere in which we lived was a sphere of spiritual death. The realm in which we lived was trespasses and sins. To be in the sphere of something means that we're in the sphere's range of an area or an activity. If I tell you that my sphere of living is Southern California, that means everything I do in life is only in Southern California. And thus, everything I do is both connected to and affected by Southern California. Let me give you an illustration. I may not go for a run today. One reason is I don't like running. The second reason is it's hot outside. Because I live in this sphere of Southern California and it's hot outside, that's going to affect me and I'm not going to run. In our spiritual deadness, the sphere of absolutely everything we did could be summarized in these two words, trespasses and sins. Apart from Christ, we were swimming in trespasses and sins. To trespass is to, to cross a known boundary, right? That's blatantly walking past the no trespassing sign, and I know none of us have ever done it, especially as kids. But a sin here is missing the mark. It's, it's falling short of the standard. And while we may not have all committed certain trespasses, the Bible is clear that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is emphasizing that, that everything we did in our spiritually dead state resulted in us either disobeying God or falling short of his perfect standard. This is what theologians call total depravity. And what it means simply is that sin taints every aspect of our person. It doesn't mean that all humans are, are equally depraved. It doesn't mean that all humans are equally as bad as everyone else. Nor does it mean that we're incapable of doing any good. Instead, total depravity means that every part of the human being 
the mind, the emotions, the will is affected by the fall. Charles Spurgeon so helpfully illustrated it this way. He says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. So apart from Christ, we were dead. But second, apart from Christ, we were dominated. We were dominated. That phrase in verse 2, following the course, carries with it the idea of, of control and enslavement. You see, our former lifestyle, apart from Christ, one author wrote, was not true freedom, but rather a bondage to forces over which we had no control. Paul lists three compelling influences that, that controlled and directed our life apart from Christ. He mentions the world, the flesh, and the devil. First, apart from Christ, we walked, verse 2, in the course of this world. We were dominated, directed, and controlled by the world's values and attitudes and standards. What the world did, that's what we did. Those without Christ, one author wrote, are capable, or captive, excuse me, to the social and value systems of the present age, which is hostile to Christ. They were willing slaves to the pop culture of the media, the group think of the talk shows, post-Christian mores, and man-centered religious fads. The spiritually dead are dominated by the world. Not only that, but second, apart from Christ, if you look at verse 2, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Not only were we dominated by the world, but also by Satan. Scripture describes Satan in John 12, 31 as the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's called the God of this world who blinds the mind of unbelievers. And the course of this world, what goes on in this world, follows the leadership and design of the prince of the power of the air. He, he certainly now exerts influence and direction on this world. And so apart from Christ, we followed in his footsteps such that Paul says, what were we? We were children of disobedience, sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, we not only walked following the standards of this world, but we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Finally, apart from Christ, he says in verse 3 that we walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Think about this. Apart from Christ, apart from the work of God in salvation, apart from God saving us and indwelling with us with his spirit, 
We lived our lives under the influence of the flesh. We're dominated by our self-centered passions, by our sinful thinking, by our sinful desires. And in light of verses 2 and 3, I think it's important to note that the unbeliever thinks himself autonomous, free from any master, but here we see the opposite. Paul says in Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? Jesus said in, in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I think it's important as a side note, when you think about this, when you think about your condition apart from Christ, who you were before Christ saved you, before Jesus opened your eyes, before you repented of your sin, you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were following the desires of your sinful flesh. And so when we look at unbelievers, when we look at the world, may that bring in us a compassion toward them. Paul says, the unbeliever is enslaved. We don't look down on them. We do not deride them. But instead, we see the condition that we're in and that should cause us to have compassion and love and to boldly share the gospel that is the only power to set the dead person free. And apart from Christ, we were dead. We were dominated. And finally, verse 3, we were doomed. Paul says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, we deserved wrath. You see, the problem in this passage is the reality that our sinful actions are accountable to a holy and perfect God. He is righteous and he is the just judge and therefore he can and must punish sin. He cannot ignore sin. He must deal justly with it. Apart from Christ, you are accountable to the God who created you and the consequence of your sin before a holy God is eternity in hell. The depth of our depravity culminates in the fact that apart from divine intervention, apart from God making a dead person alive, our sins deserve the just penalty of God. If you do not know Christ this morning, this is what your sin wage, uh, earns you. The wages of sin is 
death. Throughout history, there have been and, and really still are three basic views concerning human nature. The first is that man is well and that all man needs to flourish is a good diet, some exercise, and some gummy multivitamins. Right? The gummy ones are better. The second view is that man is sick, but with enough self-help books, he can work hard and, and pull himself up by his bootstraps. But the biblical view of man is that he is not well or sick, but dead. And since dead men can do nothing, we are hopeless apart from the divine intervention of another. And so Paul then transitions from explaining the amazing depths of our depravity to the amazing heights of our salvation. Paul takes us from Death Valley to the top of Mount Whitney. He says in verse 4, but God. You will be hard pressed to find a better two words in the Bible, but God. And in these two words, we see the whole gospel summarized set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, we have the gracious initiative of a sovereign God. God's gracious and merciful and loving actions in verses 4 to 10 stand in contrast with the hopeless condition of humanity apart from Christ that we saw in verses 1 through 3. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were enslaved, swimming in trespasses and sins, dominated by the world and the flesh and the devil, but God. We were children of wrath. We were objects of the wrath of God because of our sin, but God had mercy on us. Praise God. It's because of these two words that I love baptisms and I love hearing testimonies. Spend a moment right now thinking of your own. I was a liar, but God. I was addicted, but God. I lived an immoral life, but God. But God saved me. And God delivered me, and God gave me new life, and he raised me up with Christ. Dear Christian, does grace still amaze you? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you still marvel at God saving you? Spend time today meditating on these verses. Recall to mind the, the testimony of God's grace in your life and praise him for it. Spend time fellowshipping with one another, hearing each other's testimonies, and marvel at the gospel. I was dead, but now I'm alive. 
I was a son of disobedience, but now I'm a son of the living God. My sins are forgiven and wiped away. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And if you're not a Christian this morning, but you recognize that that sinful desires and actions characterize your life, then see the remedy for you here in verses 4 to 7 that the Lord Jesus Christ is full of mercy and grace, love and kindness. In verses 4 to 6, Paul transitions and he reminds us of the actions of God's saving work. He describes the amazing heights of salvation by reminding us how God saves sinners. And if you're in Christ, this is your testimony. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One thing that I I love uh, about these verses and which is so common for the Apostle Paul is he begins extolling how great God is, how wonderful a Savior Jesus is. And then in the middle of the thought, he blurts out something that's related, but he's trying to get to later. Look at this. Verse 5. He's trying, his flow of thought is, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ and raised us up. But before he can even finish that sentence, he says, by grace you have been saved. Marvel at that. Praise God for that. And it's a truth that he'll expound on in verses 8 to 10 that we'll look at later. But in verse 4, God made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses. The word make alive, right? It means to to raise from the dead. And and commenting on this verse, R. Kent Hughes wrote, man is radically dead and he can be saved only by the radicalness of resurrection. God made us alive when we were dead in sin and deserving of wrath. And notice who took the initiative. Who saved us? God God made us alive when we were dead and unable to do anything. God rescued us from wrath when we deserved punishment for our sins. There wasn't anything that we could do to earn this salvation. No one can crawl out of a casket, but God alone took the necessary action to save us from our spiritually dead and utterly sinful condition. This is illustrated so well in Ezekiel chapter 37 when God breathes life on a valley of dry bones. Why did God save spiritually dead sinners? Sinners who are are dead, dominated, and doomed. Sinners who have nothing to bring to the table. 
No reason that God should forgive us. Why did God save spiritually dead sinners? Because he is merciful. See, what prompted God to act on our behalf was not something in us, not some supposed merit, but rather something in himself, his unmerited favor. God saved us, Paul says, because he is rich in mercy. Mercy is God's compassionate disposition on on someone in distress. And God, in his mercy, sees the sinner and saves them. And his mercy is described as rich. The God of creation is not only just, but he is also exceedingly merciful. One author wrote, for those who are painfully aware of their multiple sins and their inability to escape the influence of the world, the devil and the flesh, this is overwhelmingly good news. Dear Christian, your heavenly Father is merciful. Bring all of your sin, all of your suffering, all of your trials to your heavenly Father. And Hebrews 5, 2 says he will deal gently with you. He is able, John Owen wrote, with all meekness and gentleness to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people, even as a nurse bears with the weakness of a poor infant. And if you're here today and you say, I've sinned against God so many times, I deserve to go to hell, what hope for me would there be? Would there be any hope for a sinner? Yes, you were a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. God is rich in mercy and loves to save sinners like you who through faith trust in God for their salvation. We've sinned against the holy God and the wages of sin is death, but God sent his son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross as our substitute. And then three days later, to rise from the grave. And now he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe in him. And what compels God to to demonstrate this great mercy on sinners? His great love. Look at verse 4. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Beloved, this morning, do not miss God's love for you in this passage. Believer, God the Father loves you. And this is important to note. We need to avoid falling into this error of thinking that that God's love for us is merely a result of Christ dying on the cross for us when the reverse is the case. Romans 5.8 
says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can't go a sermon without quoting Sinclair Ferguson because I like his name. No, in all seriousness, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully writes, the gospel truly reveals the deepest heartbeat of God toward us. Jesus' work did not persuade an angry father to love his wayward children. No, the father loved us and did not spare his own son for our salvation. The son loved us and did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Spirit loved us and is not ashamed to indwell and sanctify us. Dear Christian, the Father loves you. The love of the Father is the heartbeat of the gospel. In verse 6, Paul continues explaining the, the actions of God's saving work. Verse 6, he, he made us alive and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The end of chapter 1 in verses 20 and 21, Paul describes the amazing power of God in, in raising Christ from the dead and seating him at the right hand of the Father. Now, in chapter 2, Paul explains the amazing power of God in dramatically changing our status from dead to alive and seating us in heaven. We are participating in Christ's death and resurrection just as Christ was raised from the dead and seated in the heavenly places. So too are we. And though we're not yet seated with Christ physically. We are already in the heavenlies by virtue of our union with Christ. You see, God seats us with him in the heavenly places such that we're no longer in this sphere of, of sinfulness and rebellion. In Christ, we're no longer in the sphere of spiritual death, but of spiritual life. And then in verse 7, we see the purpose of God's saving work. He made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses. But for what purpose? Look at verse 7. So that, purpose statement, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's ultimate purpose in saving sinners is to display his grace and kindness for all to see forever and ever so that God may get the glory. The phrase, the, the coming ages, refers simply to all future time, both in this age and in the ages to come. So Paul says here that, that we are trophies of his grace. 
We are walking testimonies of God's kindness, constantly pointing people away from ourselves to the one who rescued us and redeemed us from our sin. Christian, as you remember how God brought you from death to life, let your love of God and your gratitude for his grace cause you to bring praise and glory to him each day. Use your testimony to share how God saved a wretched sinner. Remember the gospel each day and begin by praising him for this work. And one of the ways that Christians bring God glory as we're going to see more next week in verse 10, is by glorifying God by the way we live. You see, we were dead, and we once lived in the lusts of our flesh, but now God has raised us from the dead. God has given us new life. He's given us new affections. And now we no longer walk in that way. Instead, we display that we are trophies of his grace for saving us. I walk around and I am a walking testimony. I say, yet not I, but Christ in me. By grace I was saved. I think it's an important reminder of how powerful your testimony can be. That's one of the reasons why I always encourage people who have yet not be baptized to get dunked. It's not for you, it's for God's glory. And more than that, it's this wonderful opportunity to invite all kinds of friends and family to be a captive audience in a sermon and for you to proclaim the gospel to all who you want to hear. I once was dead, but now I am alive. And as we stand on this mountaintop of salvation by grace this morning, and we see that we have been rescued from a valley, let grace become amazing to you again. May we never grow dull of it. May we always be astonished by it, realizing what? That we have been saved from the valley of death and that we have been raised to the amazing heights of salvation. And if, if, if you're sitting here and you say, I don't know that peace, I haven't experienced that love. If you sit here today and you look at this depth of depravity, this, this plight picture in verses 1 to 3, understand that because of the grace of God, you do not have to be a child of wrath anymore. You no longer have to be a son of disobedience, enslaved to these sins which you want to throw off. Jesus has come and he has taken the punishment on the cross. That if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And as Paul says in verse 8, which we'll look at next week, that you can be saved from the wrath of God through faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Talk to someone who you're sitting next to. Don't leave. Please don't leave without thinking about these truths today. From death to life. From the amazing depths of depravity to the astonishing and amazing heights of salvation. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we do come before you this morning. Lord, as we're confronted with verses of who we were once outside of Christ, as we hear the the bad news, as it were, oh, it makes that good news so sweet. Father, we thank you that when we were dead in our sins, when there was nothing that we could do to be delivered from the just punishment we deserved, you saved us. In your mercy and your love, you rescued us, transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, I pray that we would be walking testimonies this week, that we would be trophies of God's grace, that we would glory in this salvation, that it would cause our hearts and our minds to praise you and glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.